Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This week in Washington, war fever fully took hold. At briefings this week, members of the White House press corps took turns trying to find new ways to push the U.S. into direct military conflict with Russia. Zelensky and other Ukrainian officials have made so clear that what they believe they need the most is more warplanes and fighter jets. So why does the U.S. believe they know better what that means than what Ukrainian officials are saying they need the most? It sounds like, you know, we're pretty dug in on our position when it comes to the no-fly zone, when it comes to uh, the MiGs. To put it bluntly, is Zelensky wasting his time tomorrow? On the aircraft specifically, the Pentagon said last week that Secretary Austin said they do not support the transfer of additional fighter aircraft at this time. Is that still the United States' position? Would a, a strike in Poland on supplies or, or, or anything really uh, automatically be met with a military forceful response or simply a conversation amongst allies about how to respond? There are reports that a Russian drone made its way into uh, Polish airspace before going back to Ukraine and being shot down. Does a drone into Poland count? Is the president showing enough strength against Putin? Putin were to use chemical weapons, would it change the president's thinking when it comes to these mix taking the no-fly zone off the table, but at least on this issue? Are you prepared? Can you give us any more details about what that threat means of severe consequences? The president obviously made the same threat last week. Is that purely economic consequences, or would there potentially be a military threat? The risk of global nuclear war seems to be deeply unappreciated by the American press corps. That might be the most existential risk Russia's war has created, but it's not the only one that's being missed. The pain people are feeling at the pump is impossible to miss, but all of these massive price swings are having or are going to have immense consequences that we're not remotely prepared to deal with, whether it's the surging wheat prices that'll likely produce bread riots around the world this spring and summer, or collapse of the fertilizer market that'll only make it worse. In February, Rupert Russell published the timely new book, Price Wars, how the commodities markets made our chaotic world. It got a brutal review in the Wall Street Journal and has been otherwise almost completely ignored. I'm hoping the deconstructed audience can help change that because it's one of the most important books of our time, I think. The journal review includes one of the most transparently idiotic paragraphs I think I've ever come across, and it formed the centerpiece of their resistance to the book. So the journal writes, Mr. Russell assures us that his logic is devilishly simple and that in commodity prices he has found his butterfly, he means the proverbial insect whose wing flap leads to a hurricane. It seems that he has scarcely seen a butterfly that didn't cause a hurricane. Price, he intones, can spark riots, revolutions, and war. Prices unlock cages and release monsters. According to standard theory, prices are not a causal agent any more than newspapers or cell towers. Prices communicate scarcity or surplus or uncertainty. They transmit information. For Mr. Russell... Prices are engines of chaos. They hide, spread magic, and manipulate. They are tools for the few to enrich themselves at the expense of the many, unquote. Okay, first of all, that's not actually a fair rendering of his argument. 
But think about the journal's comparison points here of newspapers and cell towers. Do they really think that the advent of the printing press or the development of mass media or the internet were neutral events? Or have no effect on society beyond the mere transmitting of information? Had they searched all of human history, they might not have been able to pick two worse examples in their effort to undermine his account. In any event, I'm happy to welcome here Rupert Russell to Deconstructed. Well, Rupert, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. By the way, my colleague, uh, Zach Carter, says hello. How do you, how do you know Zach? Um, I sent him the book back, back in the summer, but um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of his book. Yes, if, for those who I haven't told about it yet, I, I, I should have I should have done an episode on it if I haven't yet. Uh, Zach Carter wrote this terrific biography of John Maynard Keynes, just an incredibly readable, insightful kind of page turner of a of a history of of his ideas. And uh, I was talking to Zach about your book because you know he and I back at the Huffington Post back in 2011 wrote a piece that was kind of provocative at the time that said that basically blamed you know Goldman Sachs and Wall Street uh, for fueling the protests in the Middle East that became the Arab Spring although giving them credit if you want to if you want to see you know if you want to see the the Arab Spring as a positive development which which I would and I guess I would split it this way the the protests are a positive development but the the pain and suffering that causes them are not are not a positive development. And when I saw your book, I was fascinated to see a much more in-depth look at the way that uh, banks, and in particular kind of speculators and speculators in commodities have been able to monkey around with prices and the absolute kind of world-shattering consequences of those price shifts. And I've been thinking a lot about that lately in the context of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the, the resulting wild swings in oil prices and the dis- massive disruption you know, to other commodities, particularly wheat, which you know, we're, we're only beginning now, I think, to see the fallout from that. You know, what's happening, the carnage in Ukraine is horrific and you know, the, ent- the world is right to be concerned about it. The carnage that could result in an unintended way from the conflict as a result of these kind of spikes in wheat prices and other commodities, I think it is not fully appreciated. And so that's one reason I wanted to, to have you on to talk through this. So thanks again for, for joining me. Thanks for having me. It couldn't, it couldn't be more timely. I mean, the book looks at, begins with that moment at the Arab Spring and the spike in wheat prices. And then it's essentially a sort of a 10-year history, like almost up until up until the present day, of how there was this feedback loop between chaos in the markets and chaos in the real world, which sparks more chaos in the markets, and it just continues and continues. And we're seeing that exactly play out now. You had rising oil prices last year. This, of course, sends an injection of cash into the Kremlin's coffers. This emboldens Putin to put troops around Ukraine. Speculators then price that in as risk, right? And then that also pushes up prices and you have this feedback loop so Putin feels even more emboldened he knows the world needs his oil he knows the world needs his gas more than ever um then of course the invasion itself becomes the actual risk becomes uh, amplified once further right and then we're hitting 130 dollars per per barrel i think just last week and so the cycle's continuing 
And your and your book came out a few months ago, it, and it didn't precisely you know, forecast this specific invasion, but it did certainly forecast this type of thing, and and is a prism through which you can explain it. And you also traveled to Donetsk, and uh, and I want to talk about that in a little bit. But first, let's go back to sort of the beginning of the story. I, I think it's smart to start in the mid 2000s as you talk about the way that the ma major financial institutions, Goldman Sachs and others, have created these commodity indexes where uh, investors, pension funds and other, and other speculators could dump massive amounts of, of capital and have it sort of track the price of commodities. They kind of sat there for a little while until about 2007 when you start to see real estate collapsing. That, of course, is the story that everybody's familiar with, derivatives, mortgage-backed securities, subprime loans. We all know that one, but we don't really know the connection to the rest of it. And so as money kind of pours out, the pension fund and other money pours out of real estate, it's looking for somewhere to go and it, and it floods into these commodity indexes. And you all of a sudden have more speculators pumping money into commodities than actual purchasers. I think you had some stat that you know, more, more people through Wall Street were just speculating on wheat than the Chinese government was even buying wheat. And so the predictable result is a huge spike in prices. That then has this ripple effect throughout the world. And have you read the book Behind the Beautiful Forevers by Kate Boo? I can't say that I have, no. So good, highly recommend it. She follows a, a number of children for several years through their lives in slums in Mumbai. And the children, like all children around the world, you know, measure themselves as they're growing. And what she realizes is that their growth ends up being tied to commodity prices because their jobs, so, so to speak, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten year olds, is picking up scrap metal and selling that scrap metal. And as commodity prices spike, they're able to afford more food. And then in 2008, when you have this commodity crash that you write about, they actually like physically, literally stop growing. You can see the way that these prices are filtering through the world and impacting everybody's life. You know, so that brings us back up to 2010. Start us there. So Tunisia is where the Arab Spring really takes off. And we understand it as a fight for freedom, which it absolutely became. But as you write about, as, as Zach and I pointed out back then, the initial anger was around corruption and around bread prices. Precisely, that's right. So you have one big commodity shock in 2008. You then have the financial crisis creates a global recession. Then you have like a third shock, which is sort of the global food price spike. And you're right, absolutely. Tunisia, Sidi Boucid, Somewhere I actually went on the anniversary of the Arab Spring back in um, 2014. And when I spoke to people there, I was there for a couple of weeks covering the presidential elections and everyone was complaining about, still complaining about food prices. They were saying, we thought the revolution was going to make life more affordable, to make life easier for us. And, you know, things are worse than ever. And so what you sort of, I think the, the, the way in which to think about this is, is to think about these commodity price shocks and food price shocks in particular as kind of sparking an avalanche, right? So you've got, it begins in Tunisia, but very soon afterwards in Egypt, you've got actually a, 
uh, Baker sets himself on fire as well, right? There was a self-emoliation in Sidibusi, there's a self-emoliation in Egypt because he can't afford the subsidized bread. Now, it's important to understand that the reason why these uh, prices are so politically volatile or explosive rather is because they're baked in, so to speak, to the social contracts, right? So many of these governments say there's kind of an implicit agreement between the sort of these autocrats and the people, which is okay, you give us the power, we get to, you know, maybe lavish our families on palaces and so forth, but we're going to guarantee that you can afford to feed your family. And the way in which they do this, and they've done this since kind of the end of the colonial period after the Second World War, is through bread subsidies and also some form of wage or job guarantees as well. So the idea is there's some kind of basic subsistence. And so what you see with these protests is A, people are coming out holding bread. They've got signs saying, you know, against corruption. And these these issues are all tied together because they see the corruption as the reason why bread has gotten more expensive, right? And to be fair, it is corrupt, right? A lot of this money does get siphoned off. There are black markets in wheat and bread in these places. And so Prices are inherently political. But what I found so interesting in these stories, and you can date this all the way back to the French Revolution as well with like the meat cake, this is an old problem, but there seems to be a kind of almost cross-wiring here. People tend to blame politicians for the price of bread or other commodities going up or down. You're seeing it in Biden's America right right now. But really the players in this are the, are the global commodity markets. It's something which is happening outside of the state. And so it kind of creates a sort of fragility in the world whereby the legitimacy of these regimes is ultimately dependent upon something over which they don't have any control, ultimately. And, and I actually did want to quibble slightly with with a couple lines you had about the French Revolution, because I actually think the French Revolution goes even further to support your thesis um, than you even spelled out in the book. And, you know, you know, as as you note, the, the political relationship between these prices and the blame toward the leadership comes from that social contract, and often is chalked up to corrupt corruption by people. But they say that you know the the reason that we're getting screwed with on these high prices is that there's some type of conspiracy by the elites to profit off of our misery. And in, well, I, I don't remember the precise details, but sometime in the late 1780s, the, the uh, dynasty there did go through a liberalizing of the, of the wheat trade, of the bread trade, and prices started flying all over the place. And there were these uh, conspiracies and some some true theories among people that a lot of that speculators were hoarding grain in order to drive prices up and some of the bread riots were about bringing back the previous kind of subsidized and stabilized regime where you every grower had to you know turn over a certain amount of crops so in in some ways i felt like the the experience of the french revolution was even uh, more similar to what we experienced in the 2010s than, uh, than previously understood. Right at the end of the book, I actually delve into that case study you just mentioned. It got called the Flower Wars. Mm-hmm. So Adam Smith's kind of cousin in France was uh, Turgot. And he was also this big free market thinker. And he thought the problem with France's system is that you have all these, it was very similar to in the Arab countries, you have the system of, of of subsidies. One historian calls the king the baker of last resort, right? Like that was the sort of the function. Right. And the problem was is at the time, 
throughout the 18th century, the farms were basically just not producing enough food to feed people. And so even very small climate shocks by just one or two degrees could impact prices, and then that would lead to riots and revolutions. In the 80 years before the French Revolution, I think around 20 to 30 of them actually had major bread riot incidents, right? So this was actually a very present political problem that the elites of France were trying to solve. And so Adam Smith had this kind of, as I say, kind of intellectual cousin in France called Tejot. And his theory was, look, if one way to get the farms to be more productive is to essentially liberalize, right? Let's let's let prices kind of go up a bit. That'll encourage investment. But not only that, it means that, say, you know, there's a drought in Lyon, for example, and the price of food spikes. It's going to create an incentive for traders in neighboring countries, maybe Lombardy, maybe Britain are going to kind of come over with their wheelbarrows of of, of grain and that will bring the price down. So this elementary kind of economics 101. And, uh, you know, King Louis XVI, who would later be beheaded during the French Revolution, he actually tries this out, right? Uh, early on, in, I think it's 1774, he um, appoints him to enact this. And of course, it's a complete total disaster, as you say. There's rife speculation, they have to deploy the army, they start shooting people, it's just complete chaos and mayhem. Um, And of course, they called it the flower wars, right? So it was a bit, and he had a kind of shock doctrine sort of approach to this, right? We're just going to do one big bang. And the problem was, is that the, is that not only did you have corruption and speculation, but you just couldn't have a free market, right? There just weren't roads. There wasn't roads to transport this grain. And that's actually a problem that we're seeing right now, right? When we're seeing American ports are sort of filled up, you can't, mm-hmm. the boats can't dock. They had supply exactly. chain problems. Exactly. It's exactly the same problem you've got now. So the free market assumes a level of like fluidity across the world or across the markets, which is incredibly fragile. And when it's working, like it's done for, to be honest, most of my lifetime, you kind of take it for granted. But then it's sort of the smallest kind of shock sends it, stops it from working. And then, you know, suddenly we're back to where we were in 1774. In that instance, they called it the the uh, flower wars. And that was what I call the first price right. war created by the free market. And I did think you were, made a very good point directly on the French Revolution that there was this really terrible harvest, you know, yes. it, right in 1789. And so there's more ex, there's more actual material explanation for the price going through the roof than we have had over the last 10 years or so, where there hasn't been a shortage of, say, oil. There hasn't been a shortage of commodities necessarily. It's, you know, there's no underlying reality that has driven these prices to where they are. It's speculators who have pushed it into this place. and. You, you talk in an interesting way about the difference between reality and perception. And in a way, perception in the financial markets becomes reality. Talk a little bit about the, your, your Anne Hathaway example, because I thought that, that really crystallized it in my mind. Yeah, sure. I spoke to quite a lot of people involved in finance on background for the book. And one person said, you've got to look into this. You've got to look into Berkshire Hathaway stock price. And it looks like to us in finance, that is, that if you want to predict Berkshire Hathaway's stock price, you really need to follow Anne Hathaway's career. And if you look at a whole bunch of her films over, say, a 10-year period, plus other events with her, like she was hosting the Oscars and things like that, anything that you could attach a kind of positive sentiment to, all of those sort of announcements, those box, you know, so it, maybe it's box office release, maybe it's announcing her hosting the Oscars, they're all associated with a, a jump in the share price of Berkshire Hathaway. And so the kind of theory on Wall Street was is essentially you've got, you know, algorithms, machine learning kind of bots that are sort of reading the news. 
And the speculative game is all about beating somebody else. It's all about being the first mover to incorporate information. And so they're less concerned about being correct than they are about being first. One uh, hedge fund manager said that the sort of the philosophy is shoot first and ask questions later. And they sort of build that into computers, right? And so what ends up happening is you have these computers that are reading the news and they're attaching uh, sentiment and then they're trading on it automatically. And I also think that's what's been driving a huge amount of volatility over the last couple of weeks where there's so much news coming in and you're seeing this insane volatility in oil prices, jumps of $30 a barrel in a single day. And this isn't based on reality. This isn't based on any material change on the ground. This isn't, as you say, based on, you know, Russia shutting off oil deliveries. We haven't really seen anything like that happen. And that's actually why all the prices are now down again. What this is about is it's about a social game identified by Keynes. And it was called the sort of the, he called it this beauty pageant game. And it's kind of anachronistic, a bit misogynistic. But it was this idea, there was this game in a newspaper back in the 1930s, where you won by guessing who other readers thought the most beautiful woman was. And this is sort of what I'd identified as the sort of the logic happening in many of the case studies that I was looking, whereby what was important to speculators was not to be right. They often knew they were wrong. They were often asking certain companies who were giving them data, not for the right data, but the wrong data that other people would be looking at. And then continuously, you see enormous volatility. So in 2008, you're right. Right. Um, you know, you see a huge global spike in food prices, in commodity prices and wheat prices. And that year produced more food than any other year in history. That was also true for 2010. That in, in that case, the news was uh, wildfires in Russia. So that was sort of dominating uh, headlines that kind of gets picked up, not just by algo traders, but of course, real world human being traders as well. They start pricing in a global shortage. But also that year, the Americans have a bumper crop. So again, you don't actually have a global shortage of wheat, but the prices of wheat that year nearly doubled anyway. And this is what I kept on continuously seeing. And I go through a number of different case studies in the book, looking at coffee prices, oil prices, and you see these massive overreactions. And that's sort of why I sort of saw, uh, you know, markets should respond to reality. That's what we want them to do. That's how they're supposed to work. And to be honest, before the markets were deregulated in 2000, they actually had a pretty good job being grounded in the real world. But the moment those regulations were lifted and speculators went from being around 20% of the market or open interest, as it's called in the jargon, to be around 80 to 90%, that's suddenly when you see these huge swings where you see massive overreactions. And as you sort of mentioned earlier, that is just enormous impacts on the real world. Right, because they don't have to be right in order to be right. They can be wrong and still make money. In other words, it is just objectively absurd that Anne Hathaway getting in a car crash is going to have any influence, whatever, on the performance of Berkshire Hathaway. But because all the algorithms now know that there's some link between the Hathaways, they know the other ones are going to sell if Anne Hathaway crashes her car. So everybody else sells. And so they they actually make money by being wrong. And that's kind of funny when you think about Anne Hathaway, but not so funny when all of a sudden, you know, you're living in Tunisia and you can't, you can't afford to eat anymore. You also talked about the way that oil prices, you know, surged in 2014 when ISIS took over Mosul. Yeah. Even though, A, there was no reason to think that they were actually going to take over the oil production facilities nearby. But separately, there was no reason to think that they wouldn't just keep selling the oil if they did take it over. And sure enough, there was no cutoff in oil supply. Uh, But because the, the news articles were read by these traders and these algorithms, 
as thinking that other people are going to find these women to be the most attractive. In Keynes's example, then prices rise and everybody gets rich, creating all sorts of chaos around the world, which brings us to the fallout from you know the unrest that you write about, and that's you know the Syrian civil war and then the migration crisis. So, can you talk a little bit about what you discovered about the links there? Absolutely. So the way you think about chaos is either you can think about it as a butterfly effect, which we're more familiar with, but chaos theory also kind of developed one of the main metaphors or mod- mathematical models they used was avalanches. And that's continuously what we see. Again, we're seeing it play out now right in front of us, right? But now it's sort of being sped up, right? So now we've got over 2 million refugees have come out of Ukraine in like two weeks, right? Um, it took several years for that to happen in the civil wars in Libya, Syria, Yemen and so forth. So of course you start with this food price spike, you have riots, these snowball into revolutions. The countries that by the way were able to sell oil were able to upgrade their social contracts and essentially buy off their population. So in particular, Saudi, Kuwait would be your kind of key examples of that. And Saudi was able to go into Bahrain and exactly that's put right. Theirs down. Exactly. And then Libya is an exception because NATO got involved. And then Syria is also an exception. They don't actually have that much oil in Syria, nothing on the Saudi Kuwait level compared to their population. But the Russians and other allies, Iran, kind of got involved as well and kind of propped up Assad when maybe like in Egypt and Tunisia, he probably he probably would have would have been toppled. Immediately you have like with any conflict to refugee crisis. The first countries to get those refugees were neighboring countries such as Lebanon and actually also Tunisia and Egypt in the in the Libyan case. But by 2015, 2016, that is when you have the West wakes up because they suddenly start arriving in Europe. And even though they're not really in America, it gets broadcast in America as well. And you get all kinds of uh, sensationalist headlines, images. This is sort of portrayed as a kind of invasion. And this is a precisely the moment that you begin to see a right wing populist surge all across Europe. And of course, it hits the United States slightly later in 2016. It hits Britain with Brexit in 2016 as well. And what's so interesting is the way in which the the fallout from the financial crisis, the austerity that that the European governments were imposing on their people was sort of converging with this kind of threat from barbarians at the gate, right? And so it's like the it's like the pie is shrinking and now these people are going to take it away from you. And you had these populists who have been around for a long time, like the Le Pens have been around my whole lifetime. Nigel Farage has been around for, I think, decades now. But this was suddenly their opening. These are people on on the margins and suddenly the one issue that they have been going on about and also marginalized them suddenly resonated. Uh, you have an explosion in the financial markets becomes an explosion in the Middle East, which then through the refugee crisis becomes an explosion in Europe. And this is this kind of butterfly effect or like an avalanche. And you can see how at each point it sort of becomes amplified, whether it's through the commodity markets, social media or global refugee flows. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You wrote about how, you know, bread in a lot of countries is not just you know essential to survival but it's a kind of symbolic representation of the social contract between the government and the people there and in a parallel way you talk about the way that housing and the value of housing stands in in some ways for bread in developed countries like the US and and the UK that that becomes the you know obviously a, a an essential part of of life is to have a place to live but it also becomes a symbolic stand-in for the kind of relationship between people and the system itself and, and your future in that system, like the, the optimism that you have. And you, you found some interesting data that Brexit was explained rather precisely by neighborhood by neighborhood property value. Yes, that's right. So I'm drawing here um, on the research of Ben Ansell at the University of Oxford, who's written a whole slew of just completely fascinating papers, where, as you say, he's able to take kind of granular data, sort of neighborhood by neighborhood, and looking at the change in house prices. And his sort of theory here on the on on the social contract aspect is is that when you've got you know 40 50 years of neoliberalism eroding the welfare state, so the state isn't going to provide security for you anymore the house becomes that. It's most people's major asset. If something, you know, if somebody should become ill or they can't work, people think, well, I can always sell my house. Okay, it's not what I want, but I've got a kind of nest egg there. Or after people retire and they maybe want to bump on their pension, they can again, like maybe sell their house, move somewhere smaller, and they can kind of realize that capital. And so it's completely tied into people's sense of security. And it's also something that people look to the government to help them with. So people also look to the government to help them to either maintain prices or prop up house prices. And so when you start to see prices stagnate or decline, it provokes a very sharp political response, similar to what you're seeing with gas prices as well as more maybe familiar to people. But what Ansel was able to do was he was able to break down, as I said, neighborhood by neighborhood. And it wasn't just looking at who swung to uh, vote for Brexit. In this case, it was the left behind neighborhoods in Britain. So those are uh, the neighborhoods that weren't doing so well. It was also true in the United States as well. Those sort of almost paradoxical people who voted for Obama in 2012 and then Trump in 2016, that group was also highly predicted by, 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 by this model of declining house prices. Now, that may seem kind of abstract and jargonistic and quite technical, but when you go to Detroit, you know, a state that, you know, Michigan that really went for Trump unexpectedly in 2016, you really see it, right? You're like, wow, God, this place is stagnating, right? There was so many, there was story after story for years after the financial crisis about not being able to give homes away. Some of the neighborhoods look like scenes out of The Walking Dead. At the same time, you're also hearing news reports of booming prices in San Francisco, New York, the, the coast. So it kind of creates this sense of, of, of being left behind. What I also found was that these, uh, this housing inequality, right, so the booms in London or the booms in New York were also connected to this 
uh, the commodity price shock. Because what the what the Arab Spring also did was it created uncertainty in the oil markets, just as we're seeing right now. And this got priced in by, by speculators. And this created a bubble from 2011 to 2014. And a lot of these petrodollars get recycled in real estate. So you may be seeing protests in the news at the moment in London, people going and squatting in oligarchs' houses, right? That's just a very visible kind of showy version of it. You've also got things like Norway's sovereign wealth fund is also buying up tons of London as well. And not just London, but New York, San Francisco as well. This is kind of a, a safe haven for kind of financial assets. And so you can really kind of connect the dots between, you know, oil markets, financial markets, housing markets, and again, these massive political earthquakes that they trigger. And what my book was trying to do was trying to tie together these little bits of research that already were out there, such as Ben Ansell's work, and just kind of tell one big story about the decade. Yeah, and you and you talked also about you know, prior to that, from 2002 to 2012, you had some data on what is estimated to be the excess amount of kind of oil profits that flowed to some of these countries during that period as a result of this move toward allowing pension funds and others to drive these prices up. And you put it at uh, $820 billion for Saudi, $580 billion for Russia, $230 billion for Venezuela, $290 billion for Iran, and on and on. But then you also talk about how Saudi Arabia and Russia in particular you know, pumped that money, not just into real estate, which they also did. That's that They're not necessarily spending it on real estate. That's their investment. What they're spending it on is military hardware, building up their forces, which very quickly then end up getting deployed. You went to eastern Ukraine, you toured that area. What did you take away from that? And and how has that shaped your understanding of the invasion and the war that's going on now? Yes, I went to Donetsk, um, which is sort of in this sort of breakaway puppet state, the Donetsk People's Republic. It was 2019 or something? Yeah, right on the border, the winter of 2018, 2019. And God, yeah, it was, I wanted to see how these sort of, as Warren Buffett calls them, kind of financial weapons of mass destruction ended up becoming physical weapons of mass destruction. And to sort of go there is to enter a kind of uh, fantasy land, right? It was sort of, it's set up as a puppet state by the Russians. Putin's one-time chief propagandist, Serkov, himself a kind of mythical figure, was sort of essentially kind of put in charge of this originally. And so you're kind of walking into essentially a sort of Russian um, propaganda operation. And I think the most striking thing about it was this idea that I had also heard about first in Iraq, but sort of haunted me everywhere that I went. So when I was in Mosul, which I'd gone to prior, I met somebody who said, I live in a a zombie apocalypse, right? I'm sort of in between living and dead. My neighbors are buried underneath the ground. All there in Europe, who knows, right? They've, They've disappeared. By the way, as we're talking, there's like a digger literally pulling out bodies from his his backyard, right? So this is not like a a metaphorical or abstract idea. And this idea of a zombie existence of being in between living and dead is something which I also saw as soon as you go to Donetsk, right? People are getting into buses, they're going to shops, but this place isn't alive. There are no young people. The shops are boarded up. The people here are sort of trapped. I went to a sort of an underground bunker where some people had been living. And some of them had like been there for years. 
And here you've got the same Soviet propaganda from when I suppose it was still built, must have been first built in the 1960s, right? It's kind of an incredible kind of freeze mosaic around the top, paintings of missile launchers and uh, submarines and so forth kind of looking down at us. And for me, that was like an incredible metaphor. It was like this was built in the nuclear age. This is the Cold War, the battle between communism and capitalism. Then, of course, we had the end of history like in the early 1990s, the end of that conflict. And what has capitalism done? Capitalism's created these sort of bubbles in the commodity markets, and it's actually created a bubble here underground once again. And the kind of, you know, freedom and prosperity clearly never came, never came through this place. So for me, it was, it was a fascinating look at how in which these kind of abstract ideas around whether it's bubbles, or weapons of mass destruction, you could actually see them sort of take on this, take on this physical form all around you. And it was interesting to see that all of the Donetsk people that you met were parroting the exact same propaganda that you hear from Putin today, that you know, what's wrong with Ukrainians? Well, they're, they're infiltrated by Nazis. And so we have to denazify them. So you know, that's been their line you know, for, for years now. And, and you point out the way that Putin's aggression toward Ukraine really does correlate with rising energy prices. You know, when, he, when he's flush, he just feels like he has more room that he can maneuver. And you interviewed, was it Colin Hendricks, political science professor at the University of Denver, who has looked much more closely and granularly at the relationship between oil prices and conflict, which I found profound and, and disturbing. What did he find? And going forward, and this is this is why I'm so interested in this topic now, what does it forecast for us over the next couple of years? Sure. So Colin Hendricks pointed out to me, I've been talking to him for a while, he's also done lots of really fantastic work on food prices as well. But he pointed out to me, he's like, look, if you look at Russia's big military conflicts, right, invasion of Afghanistan, 1979, invasion of Georgia, 2008, definitely the invasion of Crimea and whatever was going on in Donbass, 2014. Um, these are all years of historically high oil prices. Now, you could say, well, this is just a coincidence, right? Oil prices go up and down. This is only three data points. And so what he did is he looked at 50 years of conflict. You can get these big data sets that are readily available. Um, and by conflict, um, they're sort of looking at like, you know, say China shoots down a US drone, that would be counted. These aren't like full-blown wars. That's how they count it. I think they're called MIDs, military something disputes. In the, in the political science jargon. And he you know, punched that into uh, oil prices over the same period. And yeah, you see this absolutely striking correlation. It's, it's, it's almost a straight line as the, as the oil price rises, the probability of seeing conflict started by a petro state also rises. And he kind of put this down to uh, four reasons. And in kind of my, in my language, I call it like the four locks that uncage the monster, right? I don't know what some Putin's had. I don't know what his motivations are, but the commodity markets are sort of let him do whatever he's wanted to do. They've given him that freedom. And that's really the way to think about how these markets create chaos. So the first one would just be simply, as we've already said, a windfall, right? You get cash. You can spend that on your foreign currency reserves to defend against sanctions. You can spend that on guns, tanks, whatever, what, what have you. It also acts as a shield against sanctions because when prices are high, that means sort of by definition, allegedly, the commodity in particular, in this case, oil is scarce. So it means that it's more difficult, as we're seeing right now, for countries to uh, effectively sanction you. 
Thirdly, it's the gas weapon, which Russia has used really since the 1960s. You know, Khrushchev built all these pipelines that ran down from Siberia into Eastern Europe. And they, you know, the Kremlin from the 1960s till today has been using uh, those pipelines to to gain advantage, right? So when the Eastern Bloc was being difficult, they would suddenly raise the prices. And if they were in a crisis and they wanted to prop up the regime, like happened in Poland in 1980 with the Solidarity Movement, they would actually discount the gas even further to kind of help give essentially a financial boost to the regime. And, And Putin's done this as well. He's with, you know, all of these... Uh, states in his orbit. He's always raising or lowering the gas prices, or in some cases, shutting it off. Belarus, for example, gets effectively free gas because he just never pays Putin back. And that's just sort of taken as a taken as a given. So when gas prices are high, which they were at the end of last year, actually extremely high, then the gas weapon becomes even more powerful. And the third, the third uh, lock is sort of what this all combines into. And Hendrix has this great idea of chestiness. Right. So all these kind of material things become a sort of a psychological breaks, a psychological barrier. Right. So suddenly Mm -hmm. people feel emboldened. They feel confident. Of course, it's slightly hubristic. And this is actually what sort of turns opportunity into action. Uh, When he was talking about chestiness, I I was also thinking about the UAE and Saudi Arabia, you know, who have just been on a complete regional rampage uh, over the last seven, eight years, you know, famously at war in Yemen, but also just messing around everywhere, you know, Ethiopia, uh, Somalia, try, you know, they, they contemplated overthrowing the King of Jordan. They blockaded Qatar and even contemplated a military invasion there. And I, I wonder if you think that the chestiness, the chestiness theory fits with the UAE and Saudi Arabia's recent behavior as well, which flows into their kind of willingness to tell Biden to kind of go pound sand when he's pushing them to do the thing that our client states in the Middle East are supposed to do in a global crisis, which is you know bail us out by pumping more oil. I think it's I think it's absolutely true, and you saw it not just in not just in the Middle East, but you've also seen it historically in Latin America as well. Two thousand eight, another as you've mentioned, period of high, high prices also saw some chestiness then on Hugo Chavez's part with like his neighbors and and with the U.S. Mm-hmm. I also think Saudi is almost a particularly special case. They're absolutely the giant here. They're always pretty chesty, but they've also had periods where they've needed the U.S. Right, so you know back in the back in the early nineteen nineties. Um, and also also in the 1980s. And the U.S.-Saudi relationship has sort of been interesting things I came up in my, my research was, you know, how crucial Henry Kissinger was to the relationship we have right now. You know, Kissinger kind of in 1973, you know, OPEC doubled and quadrupled the oil price. Kissinger said, let's just bomb Saudi Arabia. And then the Saudi Arabian oil minister gave an interview to the New York Times and said, we'll blow up our own oil fields. It's fine by us. It's going to send the price shooting up even higher. We're the ones who are going to benefit from this. And then Kissinger had to get essentially a crash course in oil economics from the US oil giants. And I think it was the head of Exxon, who said, look, Kissinger, they've got all the cards. And he kind of struggled to like get his head around this. But by the time he did, he came up with a kind of ingenious idea, which is like, okay, if we can't beat the Saudis on this oil question, because they've got the oil and we don't, why don't we make sure that their money ends up in America? And this is what you what gets called petrodollar recycling, right? So the American consumer goes to the gas pump, buys oil, that money goes to Saudi Arabia, and then Kissinger essentially helped figure out 
a month with other Wall Street bankers like Citigroup had to get that money back into the US. And they do it through essentially three things, buying US treasuries. So essentially then financing the uh, Reagan deficit that kind of started happening was done with oil, Saudi oil money. Uh, they buy a lot of weaponry, defense equipment. And they also invested, of course, in uh, financial assets. So that could be the stock market and sort of real estate. And so you almost can kind of imagine, the way I kind of pictured this was you can imagine there's a kind of digital dance that takes place on Wall Street, right? The money may not actually even leave a US bank. This has been a, a key way in which the resource curse is sort of perpetuated globally is that countries, not just the US, UK in particular, are very, very, very happy to kind of take all of this oil money from these regimes and sell them weapons and sell them weapons instead. And of course, that fuels this, this chestiness phenomenon. I mean, the, the bombs that, you know, Saudi Arabia is using on Yemen are predominantly made in the US and the UK. Yes, and you also visited Kenya in your reporting, and I was particularly curious to get your take on on that trip, because one of the things I'm, you know, most afraid of is is what the fallout of this this war is going to be in Africa, uh, where, you know, which is heavily dependent on Russian and Ukrainian wheat, and doesn't have a whole lot of room. If if bread prices go up in the United States a bit, it, you know, people would be frustrated. People are frustrated by gas prices practically doubling, and it does create unrest, but they seem much closer to the boiling point in a lot of these countries. And you identified what you described as this index of, of when a country hits a boiling point of 210. I don't understand all of the inputs, so, but could you explain a little bit about how these political scientists have gotten to the idea of, of when basically bread prices or, or other prices can get a country to a boiling point and how much risk there is of that happening, particularly in Africa, as a result of this of this war. Sure. So the boiling point idea comes from uh, Yanir Bayam's research and his colleagues at the New England Complex Systems Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And they were looking at the double uh, food price bikes of 2008, 2010, and they used some sort of fancy mathematics from complexity theory, which is sort of related to chaos theory called phase transitions. So it's the same mathematics that takes you from 99 degrees centigrade on some water. It's, you know, it's warm, but it's kind of, you know, it's, it's just, it's just there in the pot. And then just one degree more, suddenly it's boiling and you've got this miraculous transformation where liquid turns into steam and it escapes out of the pot and it goes all around your kitchen, right? And so you can, they use that same mathematical model and they basically applied it to to food prices and the way in which food prices are measured globally is actually by the UN. And they essentially take a kind of average of food commodity prices to create this index and it allows you to, it allows you to compare one country to another. It's very, very worrying that right now we seem to be shooting way past that 210 threshold. Now, the commodity markets in the real world, there's not a one-to-one -one correspondence. So the way in which it kind of gets filtered through global supply chains and, of course, government subsidies and literal shortages of wheat, which you might also be looking if this Ukrainian harvest can't get out of Ukraine to the people that need it, in particularly in the Middle East and Sub-Saharan Africa, where a lot of that wheat is destined. There's multiple problems here, right? First and most important is hunger and poverty. 
This has already been happening, by the way, during the pandemic. So you've already seen sort of food-related riots and enormous uh, spikes in hunger and poverty throughout 2010 and 2021. Kenya actually was was one of those countries. So for a lot of the world, this is actually already actually already in the middle of one of these tsunamis of hunger and poverty. And now and now it's just going to get an absolute complete complete ratchet up. Now this is if we do nothing, right? So it's really important to also state that the US, China, other major major economies have enormous reserves of wheat and other foodstuffs, which they can release, right? You saw Biden releasing oil last year and again this year in order to help bring down the oil price. If there really are physical shortages in these places, then it's absolutely crucial that, that essentially the rest of the world steps in and steps in essentially now to make sure it's on cargo ships, you know, heading to the places where we need it. What I discovered in Kenya was that, that was when I begin looking at how uh, there's three chapters on climate change, and this is one of the case studies, is essentially how, how climate change plays into the story is at least in the short to medium term, it's not so much that it's altering global food production. Of course, like it's going to impact it, and I don't want to downplay that. But I think what it's having an even bigger impact on is that it's stopping people from living off the land. So those people who are really living as sort of goat herders or uh, cattle farmers or subsistence, doing different kinds of subsistence living, which is, of course, common throughout sub-Saharan Africa, are already finding they can't feed their families doing this. And so it's driving mass migration to urban centers. Again, this is already underway, this process. This isn't like some future prediction. This is happening today. And so what I did is I went from these rural areas with these goat herders who often have to defend their cattle with guns. It's not a great life. And so many of them are going to urban centers such as Kibera in Kenya. And these essentially are super slums, right? So Kibera, I think, is a million plus people. And there you go from essentially in the rural where you were living before, you were living off the land. Now you're living in a market. You've got to earn wages, you get paid, and then you have to buy food in the markets. And so in fact, the people who are vulnerable to these commodity price shocks is growing. So it's actually going to be far, far, the pool of people who can be uh, impacted is far larger today than it would have been in 2008 and 2010, precisely because these super slums have been growing thanks to climate change. It, it, it seems like it was a world historic mistake to allow, I mean, I'm using mistake loosely because it was done on purpose, but to allow these massive pools of investment to park themselves in, in commodities. Uh, you know, this is you know, one, one more mistake of the you know, post-Cold War 1990s liberalization of, of everything. Is there any push to undo this? Can this be disentangled? Because the world has too many real problems to deal with, to also have to figure out how to deal with these fantastical ones that speculators are just making up. Absolutely. There was, from Dodd-Frank onwards, there's been a, a push to re-regulate the commodity markets, to rein in speculators, to go back to their original function of essentially providing liquidity or essentially hedging risk for you know, farmers, oil producers, copper miners, whatever it may be, which is what they did from the Roosevelt era until 2000. That's been caught up with all kinds of litigation and lobbying, and they still essentially don't have a decent, I've been caught, told a decent rule on this to, to actually rebane it in. Right. Law passed in 2010, and here we are. Precisely. Without, without the rules in place, right? But I think that even if that came in tomorrow and we still had a world organized by the commodity markets, we, we still may end up in the situation we are today, right? Because 
although the market is extremely volatile, it's not able, it's, it's currently essentially there's too much uncertainty, right? That's why you're seeing the volatility. We don't know if there will be oil coming in and out of Russia. And that's why one day oil's 90 and the next day it's 130. A lot of that is based on you know, the real world, right? So a lot of these predictions could end up could end up happening. What we really need is a green energy transition, right? Like we just need to, it's not a question of regulating the markets, it's a question of coming off the markets, right? So to have an analogy here, I wrote a piece for time on the war on drugs on this, it's a kind of analogous thing. It would be like, regulation would be like, you know, going on methadone. It's like, great, you know, you want to get off heroin, you want to go onto methadone, it's like a step, but really you want to cut the addiction off altogether, right? Mm-hmm. We shouldn't be importing any oil or natural gas in Russia, or to be honest, anybody else. We should be living in a green economy. And then all these issues we've been talking about, whether it's Saudi's aggression in Yemen, whether it's the whether it's the war in Ukraine, these just simply wouldn't be funded, right? These economies would have to figure out something else to do, and you couldn't essentially run these kinds of uh, gangster states, which they're doing. So in the short term, especially for food, yes, absolutely, we we should have that 2010 legislation implemented properly. But as is looking even more urgent than ever, we've just really got to really got to just get off the off the resource curse, which has been completely obvious to us ever since Carter put solar panels on the White House. Right, right, which has a huge influence on wheat, like wheat prices too, are heavily driven by the energy that it takes to to grow wheat. So you'd see stability come there too. You'd still, tell me what you think it is, you'd still have commodity wars, commodity conflicts over the commodities needed to produce the parts that go and parts and the elements that go into clean energy, but they wouldn't have the same immediate effect uh, and and the same wild swings that they have now would be would be my forecast. What's your take on that? Yeah, absolutely. As I said, like you know, the volatility the volatility is by itself terrible. Right. I also went for another chapter on climate change. I went to Guatemala. And I, you know, spoke to coffee farmers who were essentially had seen rising costs year on year thanks to climate change, which has been essentially kind of making this uh, fungus on the plants more prevalent called rust. So that increases their cost of fertilizers. That's fine if the price of coffee is also increasing, right? But in 2018-19, the coffee price collapsed. And so suddenly you had uh, hundreds of thousands of farmers, most of whom had taken out loans to uh, fund the harvest through local moneylenders by mortgaging their land, essentially faced personal bankruptcy. And that's what, you know, caused the US border crisis. That's why it was all coming from Central America. And that's why it was all hitting the United States in 2019. So what we really need is is stable prices. We need a mixture of uh, price controls, whether that's subsidies, whether that's uh, people controlling supply and demand. We've done this throughout history many, 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 many times. We just choose not to do it, right? Or rather the the sort of vested interests who who profit from this volatility have have stopped the legislation from coming to fruition. Yeah, no doubt. There, this This war is making many more millionaires, that's for sure. So, uh, Rupert, thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. And the, and the book, again, for people is called uh, Price Wars, How the Commodities Markets Made Our Chaotic World. Great. Thanks so much for having me, Ron. That was Rupert Russell, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. 
Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is the Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, DC Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to also check out Intercepted, as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go leave us a review or a rating. We're both. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.